side here because uh, I'll probably cough at least a couple of times. Can you guys still hear me? I'm going to talk a little softer just so I don't cough. Oh, Dan's having problems. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Oh, hun, can you feel that for me? Thank you. Um, cool. Anyway, let's get started. It's getting a little late in the day. Um, yeah, so, you know, welcome everybody to uh, Tribe. This is our second Sunday here. And uh, last Sunday was a lot of fun. Um, I think we had a lot of folks come through who uh, just wanted to check out, you know, the new space that we have. Um, but we're just really happy that, you know, you guys are here with us this morning to um, celebrate, you know, the Lord's presence with us. And also, you know, just to be with one another as well. Ah. Thank you. My lovely assistant. Ah. <clears throat> well, in a couple of seconds here, we're going to launch right into the uh, message. But before we do that, just want to reiterate again, you know, just um, how really thankful and grateful I am for, you know, my mom and my dad, too, of course. But, you know, today uh, I was just we were just praying earlier in the circle here and I was, you know, just praying because, you know, my mom is she's. She's going through dementia right now, and so she's beginning to forget a lot of things. Um, it's not to the point where she can't like function, <clears throat> but you know, it's just a matter of time before I think you know a lot of these memories that I cherish, that I'm sure uh, she cherishes as well, you know, isn't going to be there, you know. And um, and so Mother's Day to me, you know, it's taking on a little bit more you know meaning than I think the last few years. But anyway, let's uh, let's pray, and then we'll launch right into the service uh, message this morning. Lord, we just thank you, God, for um, loving us. We thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness uh, toward us, Lord. We thank you that you've given us your word this morning, that it would uh, nourish us, Lord, and make us strong in the faith. Lord, we thank you for your Holy Spirit, by whose power, Lord, we live and we are able to understand, Lord, what you're teaching us. And not only that, that we would have a heart to want to uh, do what you've commanded us to do. Father, this morning I pray that um, the words that I speak, Lord, would be understandable, um, that it would touch all of our hearts, Lord, that it would be useful for you, God, uh, to teach us, to bring us closer to you, Lord, closer to your son, Jesus. So please, Lord, give us a mind and a heart to understand and to embrace the things that you would have for us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> Sorry, you guys. I just have this cold that just won't go away. So I want to start out, um, you know, just most of you guys probably know, we, my wife and I and my daughter moved down here almost a year ago now from the Bay Area. And when I was up there, one of my best friends, you know, probably the lady who, because uh, at that time I wasn't a, a Christian yet, and she was the one who really welcomed me into, you know, the church that I uh, eventually grew up in, you know, up there. And so I've known her for like more than 20 years. And uh, she's a teacher. And I remember one day, probably like seven or eight years ago now, or maybe even a little bit longer, she said, Kuhn, uh, you know, I, I want you to meet a friend of mine. I was like, uh, sure. You know, who is he? I like, well, you know, he, he's, he's a fellow teacher, but he's kind of like a funny guy in that, you know, he's also a professional poker player. I was like, oh, okay, well, that's interesting. I want to meet this guy. Right, and uh, you know, but she said the reason why I want you to meet him is because you know I've been having these conversations with him, you know, for the last couple of years about God, about Christianity, but like he always kind of end the conversation by saying that you know the only way he would believe the gospel is if God appeared in the sky and tells him to, then he'll believe. So you know, of course, I went and I met with him. And when I did, you know, it was very clear the guy was very intelligent. Um, and he was very sincere in his beliefs, you know. So he, clearly he thought things through. It wasn't like, you know, he was just like <clears throat> pushing things off or, or just being like ad-libbing. 
But as I was talking with him, I could sense that you know there was a lot of intellectual pride behind his statements. And you know, through the course of the last 20 years, you know, I find out that he's not alone. I've had conversation with other friends and relatives, and you know, I shared about my faith in Jesus with them. And of course, you know, I never see like any real uh, response from them. So one of these people is a really good friend of mine from high school. And when I was telling her, when I was explaining to her why Jesus died, and because he died for our sins, he died for us because we're sinners, she literally told me, I don't buy it. And, uh, you know, the more I thought about it, the more I realized, you know, her life, she was the valedictorian at my high school. You know, super smart lady, went to Stanford. You know, she's Chinese, she has one brother, and her family life was, you know, like as solid as you can, you know, uh, look out and see. And I realized that for her, you know, the issue that's kind of hindering her was this sense of moral, you know, being morally elite. In other words, she doesn't see herself as a sinner in need of redemption. I've even talked to my uncle. Now, he was a colonel, you know, during the Vietnam War. And so, you know, after the South Vietnam lost the war, they sent him to the re-education camps for a long time, I think like 18 years. Basically, it's a prison, you know, it's a labor camp. And while he was there, he became acquainted with several Catholic priests, you know, who were also sent there for different reasons, but, you know, they want to basically just numb your mind to anything that basically is anti what the government is trying to preach. And so when I talk with my uncle about his conversations with these priests, he dismissed their claims about God's glory. That's the first thing always out of his mind. This is all just hogwash, you know. And then I later find out that, you know, he was into divination. So apparently he had built up quite a reputation as a fortune teller you know, for some very high officials in the South Vietnamese, you know, government. And on top of that, and this, you know, came like probably maybe about 12 years ago, it came out that he had a mistress and had fathered several children with her while he was married, you know, to my aunt. So what is this about? If you're like me, you have likely had opportunities to talk about your faith with others. And you may have experienced some of the same responses that I've just talked about. There are many reasons why people reject the gospel. Some claim that they're unconvinced intellectually. Others don't feel like it has anything to offer them that they don't either already have or that they actually feel like they need. Some are so deeply invested in the things of this life that for them, the gospel is a curiosity at best. Something to think about when they get around to it. At least that's been my experience. But what is really going on here? And why should it matter to us who do believe? So the scripture this morning, ah, there it is gives us a glimpse into the spiritual reality of what takes place when people encounter the gospel. It has important implications for us who follow Jesus as we try to understand who we are and our calling. That's what I want to talk to you guys about this morning. <clears throat> so if you have your Bible, please turn to Luke chapter 9. We're going to go through the first uh, nine verses. Let me read it for you. I actually have it up here. By the way, those are the three types of people that I was talking about. <laughs> I have it up here in Swahili if you're so inclined. But let me read it for you. It says this. <clears throat> and he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. 
And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, neither a staff nor a bag, nor bread nor money, and do not even have two tunics apiece. Basically, you know, don't bring an, an extra set of underwear. <laughs> That's what he's telling them. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that city. And as for those who do not receive you, as you go out from that city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Departing, they began going throughout the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was happening and he was greatly perplexed. Because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead and by some that Elijah had appeared and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen again. Herod said, I myself had John beheaded, but who is this man about whom I hear such things? And he kept trying to see him. So last week, Pastor Jake basically finished up uh, Luke chapter 8. So let me refresh your memory because it's basically a really critical chapter if you're going to understand the rest of uh, the Gospel of Luke. So as you may remember, chapter 8 began with the parable of sowing seeds you know, in different soils. And then it was followed by the parable of the lamp. Right? Jesus said nobody lights a lamp and puts it underneath you know, a bowl. So what is this about, right? It's really a discussion about access to the principles of the kingdom of God. Even though these principles are declared publicly for all to hear, most can't understand and will reject the kingdom as a result. Now before we start thinking, oh, that's not fair. This is what's really going on. It wasn't because some were smarter than others. The difference actually was some were with Jesus and those people got the inside track. So access to the kingdom of God begins with a relationship with Jesus. I have a couple of verses up here. <clears throat> Mark said that Jesus chose the 12 that they might be with him. In the book of Acts, we read that the Jewish religious leaders were astonished at the wisdom and courage of Peter and John, and quote, took note that these men had been with Jesus, unquote. Okay, so the second part of that chapter began with Jesus calming the Sea of Galilee. Then came the story of the man possessed by a legion of demons. It finally ended with the healing of the bleeding woman and the resurrection of the little girl. So the pattern of each of these stories is that there's a demonstration of God's power and it's followed by a human response. So the desired response in the calming of the storm is trust. The desired response of the story with the pigs is letting go of our earthly treasures. And the last two stories call for perseverance in faith even when there is no more reason for hope. If you guys remember, right? There's this woman who spent all her life, all of her earnings, trying to get well, went to all the doctors in town, none of them could do anything. She finally goes to Jesus and she gets healed. But that's the story inside the story. The biggest story was Jesus was approached by a man whose daughter was really, really sick and he was trying to get him to get to her, his house and heal her before it's too late, right? And so this story of the woman getting healed, right, takes up some time. And then by the time Jesus begins going to that guy's house again, lo and behold, some people came and said, you know, don't bother. She's dead. But you guys remember what Jesus said? Don't fear, just believe. And the story ends, right, with him raising this girl. <clears throat> so what's going on in chapter 8? You know, what, why did Luke put these things together? 
So taken together, these stories lay out for us the manner in which God comes to save us. God comes to save man. Here's what I mean. <clears throat> you guys want to know how God does it? This is his plan. God openly invites people into relationship with him. And those who come to him experience life in his power, which then changes them. That's it. That's the grand plan. Funny, isn't it? No, like, you know, thunder, lightning from the sky. So in today's passage, as we look at it today, Luke shows us how the kingdom expands as that pattern is repeated through the lives of the, the disciples. Herein lies the truth of who we are in Christ. From the very beginning, God's plan for redeeming his creation involves a web of relationships with Jesus at the center. Illustration. Okay, so we got Charlie Brown as Jesus. <laughs> and all of his friends and how they relate to one another forms a web. That's God's plan. Let me go now verse by verse to the first five verses of the text this morning, and I'll show you why those texts basically illustrate this thing in real life. Okay? Verse 1, it says, He called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. What is it saying? Basically, verse 1 is reiterating that salvation begins with God. It was Jesus who called the 12 together and sent them out. It also speaks of God's authority and power over the natural and supernatural world. But instead of it being administered by Jesus, which is what we saw in chapter 8, now it was being administered in the name of Jesus, but through the apostles. So do you guys know, you know, <clears throat> why we pray in Jesus' name? It's because Jesus said this, Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Let's go to verse 2. Verse 2 says, And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. So what verse 2 is telling us is that to each of these men, a task was given. No longer are they living aimlessly or just for themselves. Their lives are purpose-driven. Do you guys remember what was the first task that God gave man? Back in the book of Genesis, right? God gave us the task of managing his creation to work the garden, right? After the flood, he also gave us dominion over the animals, interestingly. In other words, he gave us a life purpose. When we sinned and rebelled, we lost our way. Our lives became an orgy of self-gratification and selfishness. Part of God's redeeming work is to reestablish a purpose for each of us. No longer are we just wandering the earth in search of self. We are now in the king's business. This is why you keep hearing people talk about, you know, God having a plan for your life. This is where it's coming from. And he does. If you ever get a chance to read, you know, the biographies of any of the well-known, you know, Christian missionaries or preachers or pastors, in there somewhere, there will be an event without fail where they had an experience where Jesus redirected their lives. Let's go on to verse 3. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, neither a staff nor a bag, nor bread, nor money, 
and don't even take two tunics apiece. Verse 3 is a command to trust God for provision. This is probably one of the most difficult things for human beings, especially men, to do. But it came as a result of the fall. When God pronounced judgment on Adam and Eve, you know, after the fall, he said that man will work and by the sweat of his brow will he eat. But the thing is this, God never said that he would stop providing nor helping. Indeed, he did provide and help. And if we look at the lives of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the way down to Peter, Paul, James, that's exactly who these people were. They were people in need. They run into things that were just way beyond what they can handle. And God comes through. He helped them through the times of trouble and uncertainty. Remember when Abraham, when the several kings basically destroyed or, you know, attacked the city that Lot was living in and carried him off? You know, everybody basically killed everybody and whoever's left, they carried him off as slaves. What did Abraham do? He asked God, God, what do I do? You know, do I have enough to like go back after these guys? You know, God says, go after them. I'm going to be with you. And he whooped three kings with huge armies. The problem is not with God. It is with man. When people find success in life, they credit themselves. But the Bible asks, what do you have that you did not receive? Look, if somebody like Bill Gates says, look, I got rich because I worked really hard and I applied my intelligence, that's how I got rich. He's implying that his intelligence was just pure dumb luck. That he just happened to be like one of the smartest people around, you know, in this, in this day and age. And then the rest was actually his doing. And so he thus robs God of his just credit. This is the very thing that the devil tries to do all the time. But verse 3 calls us to realign our thinking and to act as if everything we need will be provided by God. When, not if, God comes through, the result is accurate credit where credit is due and true humility on our part. Yes, God gave me these natural talents, but it was He who made everything work together for my good. It was He who gave the increase. You can see the difference? False humility is like, oh, no, really, you know, I'm, uh, yeah, you know, I'm not really smart. No, you are smart. God gave it to you. So why don't you say, I am smart, but it's because of God that I have it. And he worked together all these things, that silicon was ready, you know, for me to make computers. You know, all this stuff just happened to be, you know, at my front door. Let's go on to verse 4. <clears throat> Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that city. Ah. I'll go do that. Verse 4 tells us that God's provision, the provision which we just talked about, actually comes through others. Remember, at the very beginning of chapter 8, right, it talks about these women whom Jesus had healed, and they were now traveling with this group. And what, they were, they, what were they doing? They were caring for the group out of their own pockets. That's just the beginning. It's humbling for some people, like myself, to accept help from others, even when God ordained it. But this is how the kingdom works. No one is solely dependent on God. Did you guys know that? That he actually, when you pray, sometimes he answers through others. He just almost like, so stop looking just all up all the time. I want you to look around too. 
This is why God gives different spiritual gifts to different people in the, in the church, so that we have to depend on each other. All those gifts are meant to build up God's people, but they are useless unless they are applied for that purpose. You know, in Romans chapter 12, for instance, verse 8, it talks about the gift of contributing to the needs of others. In other words, the gift of generosity. You know, there are some in the church who have that gift. And along with that gift came resources. But if they start saying, well, you know, God gave me these things, or, well, I earned these things because I'm smart, then you see how they get cut, up, cut off? Not only the gift gets cut off, but the rest of the congregation, the body, you know, isn't benefiting from the thing, the one thing that God actually wanted through this person. So what is Jesus saying in verse 4? You know, whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that city. What he's saying is that don't pick and choose what God has decided to provide. Sometimes, yeah, you might be driving and a bag of money might drop on your car. That's great. But other times it might be through, you know, hey, dude, I was just thinking about you guys. You know, and actually, you know, real story, right? We weren't even thinking about asking any of the church or anything. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the church in El Cajon just called us up and say, hey, here, you know, I talked to my board and uh, they want to give you guys a gift, you know, to help you guys with this. This is even before we, like, finalize you know the lease on this thing and Jake and I just took it it's like oh well, well you know God's clearly providing so go forward with it I don't know how it's gonna happen you know or how it's gonna pan out you know after a year year and a half when we run out of savings <laughs> so now we come to verse 5 <clears throat> and as for those who do not receive you as you go out from that city, shake the dust off of your feet as a testimony against them. So verse 5 brings the whole discussion to a conclusion. Simply put, what Jesus is saying is this. The burden for the outcome of the whole kingdom enterprise is not on us. It begins with God and He alone sees to it that it achieves its goal. So what do we do with that? When life throws us a curve, know that God already knows about it, and in fact, He ordained it to happen. He wants to use it for His eternal purpose. It's there for a reason. Therefore, continue on. Go on to the next town. Go on with your life. The provision will be there. That's what He's saying. You know, don't be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe these people didn't believe us. Oh man, let's just sit here and just soak for a while. Just uh, no, don't worry about that. God's got it covered. You go on. So now do you see how these instructions and these statements that Jesus gives in this very like compact, dense passage really is a summary of everything that happened in chapter 8. They were the kingdom principles that the 12 were already living. But there, Jesus was the one who's basically building that environment. Now he's sending them out to do the same. Okay? He wanted them to live those principles out in front of others. That's, what, that's why he's telling them very specifically what to do, what not to do. But this is what's important. They may be preaching with their mouths and performing a few miracles to back it up, but the main preaching is actually with their lives. That's why in chapter 8, we see them witnessing one event after another. They were in the boat, you know, when the storm was, they were right there when the guy with the legion of demons, you know, came up. <clears throat> they were right there when the woman you know, was touching Jesus, and then this guy, right, remember? He brought, Jesus brought three of them into the room where the dead girl was laying. Why did he want them to see that? These are the exact same thing that he wanted them to see. Jesus used those events to shape them so that when he sent them out, it wasn't just with words that they were sent out. 
their whole lives were to be on display. That's basically what this is about. When Jesus gave the Great Commission, in Matthew chapter 28, he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. So the ultimate goal is not to convince believers to believe. Jesus wants disciples, learners of God's way. And the only way to do that is not by me preaching up here for half an hour. It's by each of us going wherever we are and living these things out. Someone once said, preach the gospel at all times. How do you preach the gospel of all times if all you do is talking, right? What he's meaning, obviously, right? is live it out and he says if necessary use words you know a lot of people think that you know saint francis de sissy was the one who said that but nobody knows <clears throat> look the miracles may have dried up in our days you know that's debatable right but at least for me i haven't been able to like touch somebody and heal them but i pray for people who've gotten healed the miracles may have dried up in our day, but the demonstration of the kingdom values and principles through our lives has never ceased. And it never will until the Lord returns. Every believer has a story. We may be timid in telling that story. We may not even think that our story is very significant. We may not even know that we have a story, but we all have a story. Why? because we all have an ongoing relationship with Jesus. You see, when people are pressed, when you, know, you come and you evangelize to somebody, when the world is pressed, right, it asks for evidence. That's why I gave you those examples you know, of my conversations at the beginning. They look for signs in the sky, immediate miracles, something that will wow them into submission making them forsake the things of this world. But that's not how God generally works. Instead, they get a bunch of imperfect, not very impressive people whose lives are filled with God's fingerprints. God's way is through sacrificial love, which can only be communicated through relationship. So finally, now we get to the last part of the scripture here <clears throat> we get to the short story about Herod Antipas <sighs> he was also known as Herod the Tetrarch right because basically at that time Judea was cut up into four pieces and these guys basically all came through a certain line <clears throat> from basically Alexander the Great he conquered everything but he died really early, and so his kingdom was split into four pieces, ruled, each of them ruled by one of his generals. So these guys basically came from one of those generals. Herod the Great was this guy's father. <clears throat> so now this guy's a tetrarch. He represents those who are not followers of Jesus. He was the antithesis of everything the people of the kingdom were supposed to be. He was his own god and king, he acted as if his authority were his own, even though actually it was dictated by the Romans. He was self-sufficient and fought tooth and nail to control his own life and destiny. And in that quest, he ended up killing an innocent man, John the Baptist. But the love for this world, for everything that he had, overrode his conscience. So as a result, his interest in the things of the kingdom was more like a hobby than a search for forgiveness. In short, he epitomized the verse, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. That's why Herod tells us, or Luke tells us, that Herod was perplexed. Perplexed means like, you know, I don't even know like which way to go to start analyzing this. And that's why he was trying to see Jesus. It wasn't that you know, he was trying to see Jesus with his eyes, although that was true too. 
the Greek word there is actually trying to perceive Jesus. He was trying to figure out who this guy is. You know, what does this have to do? You know, he's, there's something going on here, but he just can't put his mind around it. And he has no idea that the thing that's holding him back is actually everything, you know, the crown, everything, all the, the stuff around him. <clears throat> So I want to end and uh, you know, invite the uh, team, or at least you know, ask you guys to get ready. What's going on in this chapter, at least this first part? Luke basically is laying out for us two choices for life. We either abide in Christ and embrace God's program, or we find a reason to reject it, and we stand outside looking in. It's not a choice that we make every day. Sorry, it's not a choice that we make once. It's a choice that we make every day. <clears throat> I want to end with this. The question is, which choice will you and I make today? Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you, God, for loving us. I thank you, Lord, for giving us a brand new way of living. We thank you, Lord, for giving us the power and the means to live it. Lord, please help us, God, because we're so easily distracted into our former way of life, Lord, depending upon ourselves, uh, hoarding, gathering all that we can, Lord, and just holding you arm's length, God. So I just pray, Lord, please help us, Lord, to remember your word, God. And as we go out, as we live these things, Lord, help us then to be salt and light to those around us, God. I just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.